You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host of these proceedings, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. So the frog call teaser before the intro is in honor of World Frog Day, which today is, and a happy WFD to all frogs everywhere. So those calls were recorded this past Friday night here in central Illinois. It had been raining for much of the day and into the night, and so I met up with my buddy Justin Michaels, and we visited a few ponds over in the Illinois River country in search of the elusive Illinois chorus frog, Sudacris illinoensis. Uh, We didn't see any, but we did hear one lone male calling, which you can hear in the teaser, and there were plenty of peepers and regular chorus frogs calling, and uh, we also observed four tiger salamanders as well, so a pretty good night. Now, we had planned to head to southern Illinois to look for crawfish frogs with our buddy Jeremy Schumacher, you know, the old snoring thunder thing, but the big bands of rain missed his area, and so we diverted to save ourselves eight or more hours behind the wheel. So no snoring thunder yet for us, but Jeremy did manage to find a single crawfish frog, so maybe they're moving a bit, and maybe the next rain event will make them go kaboom. Now, before we get to this week's episode, I want to thank all the patrons of the show, including our newest Patreon supporter, Will McManus. Thank you so much, Will. Much appreciated. And if you're listening and you want to kick in a few bucks to help support the show, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. And you can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details on that. So my guests this week are two physicians, Dr. Nick Brandyhoff and Dr. Jason Folt representing the Asclepius Snakebite Foundation, or ASF. And the ASF is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to reversing the outcomes of venomous snake bites. And they are currently working in various countries in Africa. Uh, You know, it seems like most of the people I talk to are giving back in some way. And, of course, a lot of you out in the audience do as well. And, And Nick and Jason and the other members of ASF are no exception. You know, they're giving their time and expertise in a most meaningful way. So let's hear what they have to say. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. It's a nasty day here in February here at the So Much Pingle headquarters. We have freezing rain with the accumulation of eight inches of snow to come. So it's a perfect uh, afternoon to sit down and talk with uh, a couple of uh, fellows who are uh, physicians and are associated with uh, an organization called the Asclepius Snakebite Foundation, and uh, or ASF. And so I want to welcome to the show Drs. Nick Brandyhoff. Hi, Nick. Hello. And Dr. Jason Folt. Good afternoon, Mike. Hi. Good to see you guys. Uh, and uh, Nick, it's good to meet you for the first time. And Jason, we have a little bit of history, and it seems like everybody on comes on this podcast is somebody that I've met uh, in Peru. <laughs> so, sorry, folks. It's, Snake Road uh, and or Peru. Oh, that's right. I think Snake Road first. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, 
sorry, folks. That's just how we roll around here. We can't we can't get rid of the Peru factor. It's it's sort of baked into the whole podcast. So, but anyway, welcome to the show, gentlemen. And we are here to talk about the Asclepius Snakebite Foundation, ASF. And uh, so, uh, I want to just get a little background on you. Uh, we'll start with with Nick. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I uh, I'm an emergency physician, medical toxicologist, uh, based out of Denver. Um, I kind of I practice in multiple states, um, but my my primary focus of research and kind of my passion in medical treatment is snake bites. And so, you know, I do a lot of uh, consulting for a lot of the exotic bites that occur in the U.S. Uh, along with, uh, I also do probably one of the few MDs who tries to do venomic research. So I've been lucky enough to where Steve Mackesee has allowed me to sort of uh, think that I'm a scientist in his lab and do some work with them and try to get a lab off the ground at the University of Colorado uh, School of Medicine, uh, where we're doing a little bit more cutting edge stuff. So um, I have multiple hats that I wear along with running the Sleepy Snakebite Foundation. Okay. And you dropped a, a new word for me, venomic research. Which is cool. Yeah, yeah. Venomic, yeah. uh, anti-venomic research is sort of a there's a unique niche I think within the um, venom venom world. There's few labs doing it around the world. Steve is one of the the gurus of it, so it's nice to learn directly from him. Okay. And how about you, Jason? So I'm an emergency physician um, based out of Detroit. Uh, primarily, my my professional interests are in education, um, but through also I'm a herper and so kind of all along even from pre-medical school days um, I always had an interest in snake bites um, I ended up in Detroit for a variety of reasons uh, and we just don't get a lot of bites here so um, it's been uh, you know I jo joined uh, ASF a couple of years ago kind of an opportunity to to give back a little bit um, as um, kind of in that stage of my career but also uh, to, to learn too, and to, to have, um, opportunity to, you know, to, to be able to help patients who, who need treatment and assist in our mission and also be able to, to learn from the guys who, who are doing the, the stuff. So that's kind of my spiel. I, I, I have, uh, a strong interest in wilderness medicine too. So I have, um, it's also kind of a nice, uh, combination in that interest as well. Okay. All right. Very good. Okay. So, uh, Asclepius Snake Bank Foundation, ASF, uh, can you, uh, one of you guys take me through how it got started when it got started, that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. ASF was really born out by kind of an idea, uh, by Jordan Benjamin and, and some late nights with Jack Dooley, who's also on our board. You know, Jordan has spent a significant amount of time in Africa working with Jean-Philippe Chapeau. And sort of seeing seeing snake bites um, being mistreated firsthand, and sort of trying to uh, improve snake bite care in that region. And so, really, the we we came together during Venom Week 2018 uh, in Kingsville. Uh, it's one of those, you know, him and Jack had been kicking around the idea, and then Jordan went out to recruit, and so he got uh, we sort of all formed together at, at the same time. Uh, and they formed ASF in 2018. Um, and okay. since that time, we've gone through multiple iterations of uh, people involved and back and forth, but we continue to progress forward to sort of continue to expand our reach in different areas of Africa. 
Okay. Well, I, I, I went to the website, uh, which is like, it's uh, called, uh, snakebitefoundation.org. Uh, and there was a, a nice, like a little mission statement right there on the front page, which kind of, uh, I kind of took in, it, it says you're, you're a, you know, 501c3 nonprofit organization of international clinicians and scientists on a mission to reverse the cycle of tragic snake bite outcomes through a combination of innovative research, clinical medicine, and education-based public health initiatives. So does that kind of wrap up what the organization's thrust is? Yeah, I think we have, I think we kind of have multiple, um, multiple initiatives. The main focus, uh, at least, at least from our sort of egocentric point of view from Jason and mine is the clinical side and in providing um, training to healthcare providers on site there. Uh, we just built a new clinic in Guinea that is going to open in June when we go out there um, and providing supplies that way. The other arm of it is we also have a herpetology side of ASF. So we have a herpetology team um, led by Kate Jackson out of Walla Walla. Oh, um, um, and so, you know, Dr. Jackson, she's, you know, she's pretty famous for her Congo um, research that she's done. So we have a Congolese herpetology team. We have a Ghanaian herpetology team. Uh, we just onboarded Kara Smith, who just uh, got her PhD um, and does a, uh, is, a, is a rock star early researcher from herpetology side. And so we have we have sort of the, the two pronged approach um, trying to not only learn about the snakes in the regions where we work and learning about the venoms, but associate them with the clinical outcomes on top of just basic training of people in those regions. So uh, I think primarily your focus at this point is, is the, the continent of Africa. Is that safe to say? Yeah. I mean, we would love to expand at some point, but just, just to be blunt from a resource standpoint, we have to really focus our attention to specific regions and, the areas where we're working in Africa are some of the most um, heavily affected by snake bites. And there are more than enough snake bites to keep us busy if we only stay in the regions where we are right now. Well, I'm, I'm glad you guys, you know, I, I'm thinking about this before the, before we sat down to talk. Um, I was thinking about the perception of snake bite in the United States, as opposed to what's the reality in, in developing countries over here a lot of snake bites are mishaps. Um, people who have a cobra or you know, people doing dumb things with venomous snakes, either, you know, in the wild or some captive animals that they, they have. And, and so bad things happen. And so that's sort of, uh, you know, in the United States, that's sort of what we see a lot of. And it's like, Oh, there's another guy who had a, you know, who's free handling a, a, a rattlesnake or whatever. Uh, but the, there's a, the real reality of snake bite is, is something quite different beyond, you know, just the, the privileged, I don't want to say the privileged people in the United States who can, you know, get themselves in harm's way, uh, with, you know, it's, it's not part of something they do very, you know, we have people that are bitten by hike, you know, hikers that get bitten accidentally have, you know, of course, plenty of dogs and things happen to people in this country, but not on the same scale as they happen to folks in, uh, you know, agricultural areas and rural areas and other parts of the world. Right. I mean, I think from from a Herper perspective, the, the things that we hear about are the people who are messing with snakes, right, or, you know, messing up. And the things right. that the things that hit the media are obviously the, you know, the Cobra, uh, the Bushmasters, you know, the 
um, the Bush Vipers, all those big bites are the ones that hit the media. But, you know, the reality is that in the United States, there are a lot of bites that do happen to just your regular uh, person who's working in the garden or, or out hiking or their dog. You know, um, there's this group on Facebook, National Snake Bite Support. And, you know, the amount of bites that come through there on a daily basis in, in the like snake bite season or, you know, snake season is pretty is pretty alarming. And the vast majority of them are just people who are just kind of you know doing their own thing. Um, and some of the literature out there does support that. Um, you know, while while we traditionally think of like the, you know the um, you know the tease of snake bite, you know um, tattoos and testosterone and think and uh, tooth to teeth or tooth uh, or tattoo to tooth ratio, right? Remind me what these other ones are, Nick. But there's a, uh, um, you know, the, the literature is that it's tequila. not yeah tequila, right? Um, that that that. <laughs> But that's not fully, fully supported. Um, but but when you compare it to a place like Africa or India, um, you know, Central and South America, where people are are working in the fields, um, you know, where where their 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 towns, their regions are butting up against jungle and rainforests, and you know, the the human snake conflict is such a greater to such a greater de- uh, degree than what we have here. And then these people are, you know, they they're they're out there, they're working. That's their that's their way of life. It's their, um, you know, their, their way to earn a living. And for them, you know, take a snake bite and then not have, you know, easy access to medical care, quick access to medical care um, is, is really a tragedy um, and, and essentially, you know, alters their life. You know, not, not to say that someone who's been in the United States doesn't have their life altered, but just the access to care and antivenoms that work is such greater here. Yeah, you have a chance for a much better outcome in the United States. Correct. Well, we'll, we'll put it this way. You know, there's approximately 9,000 bites in the United States per year, give or take. You know, we average anywhere from three to five deaths per year in the United States. There certainly is a is a much higher percentage of people who suffer long-term problems, you know, pain, swelling, maybe a little bit of limb uh, dysfunction. The mortality in Guinea, uh, where our primary clinic is prior to getting good access to antivenom there was around 30 to 35% of people dying with the significant number of bites occurring each year, probably around 20,000 or so bites per year uh, in a much smaller, uh, that's in a much smaller uh, region from a population mm-hmm. standpoint. And so, so 20,000 bites a year and how many? 35% mortality. Wow. Yeah. 30 okay. to 35. Those are, those are rough numbers. Uh, but you get you get the variability in sort of the they also have 13 different venomous species, none okay. of them which I would want to be bit by. Um, not that I say I would want to be bit by a rattlesnake, but I know that the care here is going to occur in a, in a faster, much more rapid process. I mean, it's the same thing that occurs in Australia. Australia has multiple incredibly highly toxic venomous species, and they have a death or two a year it's very rare there but their medical system is so in tune with getting the right treatment quickly that that bites occur much less whereas in guinea as jason was saying um you know these are people out in the fields often often barefoot or minimal foot protection walking around and you get near a puff adder or a gaboon viper that tend to not move until you're right next to them and they strike um, that's a that's a significant consequence on top of having, you know, black mambas and and Western uh, West African green mambas and and all sorts of things like that. Those are, you know, you get bit. That's a highly toxic snake that's about to really rock your world in a lot of ways. I see. I 
I saw a quote too, I think from the World Health Organization, they, they, they called snakebite, they referred to snakebite as a tropical disease. Yeah, and it's, categ- it's categorized recently, I think 2017, they categorized it as a neglected tropical disease, saying uh, okay. it's, one of, it's, um, uh, it's one of the most underfunded areas in both treatment and research in the world. You know, you compare malaria that has all billions of dollars a year pumped into research trying to eradicate malaria, and in many areas of the world that the malaria is quite prevalent, snake bites cause more deaths. And so, and it's still okay. heavily underfunded due to multiple reasons. It's just a, it's just not a, it's just not a, a project that a lot of people want to help fund. I see. Um, ASF is, is designed to sort of combat that, uh, that problem, uh, under an underfunded issue. Uh, and you know, sitting here doing the math, I mean, the death rate is, that's just, that's just horrendous. Uh, and it doesn't seem to, you know, I have to, you know, I have to admit it did not, I mean, I knew there were a lot of snake bite deaths across the world, but I had, you know, when you put it in numbers like that, it's just sort of, uh, astounding to me. So in terms of ASF, uh, one of the things that when I, when I started looking into what this organization was about, you have, you have something on your website called, uh, a concept that you're, you're trying to address called the vicious circle of snake bite. Can you can you guys address that and tell us what that means? It's not just the snake bite itself. There's some other things going on with that. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have a lovely video on our website that I think succinctly uh, has good visuals of it, but basically it's about getting uh, the right care to the right people and developing trust uh, of, of getting the right care to people. Because basically what happens in a lot of areas of the world is there's not good access to good, effective antivenoms, nor basic uh, medical care. And so what happens is, is um, you know, there are some nefarious companies that are, that are selling counterfeit antivenoms and other sort of ineffective antivenoms. And so what has happened is there's becomes a distrust because, uh, so say, say your brother gets bitten by a snake, you take him to the hospital, they have a... They have ineffectual antivenom. You see them get worse. You then get a bill. Um, and, and sort of the cycle continues where now this person goes back. Their brother died from a snake bite. They say this stuff doesn't work. And so then they start to go out into other areas. Um, a lot of, a lot of traditional healers are a very common thing in, in a lot of regions of the world. And so people don't really end up trusting the medical system. They end up trusting sort of what the traditional healers have done that have been quote unquote proven for hundreds or thousands of years. And so what we're trying to do is work with local communities and develop partnerships to get a effective, safe, and hopefully cheap anti-venoms into that area, and then get people to, to work with the local healers in order to get them to, to clinics that are specifically um, designed for snake bite treatment in order to sort of break that circle and I think what we've seen, at least in our in our clinic in Guinea and, and a couple other people and partnerships we have, is when people see the effect of, of effective antivenom, it really changes the entire perception of what should be occurring. Because people are so used to getting bitten by a snake and someone either uh, having long-term problems, 
getting that limb potentially amputated, which is a, a whole issue in itself, or having a fasciotomy done, or just dying, which is, you know, and usually the, the people that are getting bitten are usually the caretakers of the family, right? It's the person working the fields and, and doing the, providing the economic support for the family. So there's a huge economic toll as well. So when you show them a video or you have wor- mainly word of mouth of this clinic does it well, my, uh, my brother got bitten. He got this uh, antivenom that really worked and it changed everything. And now he went back to work a couple weeks later. So trying to break that cycle and really work with the local communities in order to effectively get good treatment there. Mm-hmm. You know, with our clinic in Guinea, um, Salou Balde started the clinic, you know, just with very basic medical care and just good effective antivenom. He's decreased the mortality from 30% to less than 5%. And the less than 5% are now just basically airway issues due to neurotoxic envenomations by uh, mambas and cobras in the region. And so we're, our last sort of tweak is trying to, trying to get airway supplies and airway training, uh, along with the antivenom so that we can reverse that. We just donated a few, uh, three ventilators last year and continue to do trainings. So this and, particular and, clinic you're talking about is, is sort of a, a test bed. Is, is it's our, for it's you? Our, it's, it's our proof of concept. It's our crown yeah. jewel. You know, it shows, you know, Salou's had the clinic open for since 97 now. Uh, but he has done a fantastic job with incredible minimal amount of supplies. Uh, and we are now just bolstering, bolstering his clinic to, to a full functional clinic. And we just, his clinic currently is in a two bedroom sort of makeshift house. Um, we have just built, uh, last year we put, we built a 12 room clinic full hospital almost. And now are, are outfitting it to be open in June. His current clinic, which is a two bedroom house, gets about 700 bites per year itself. Um, the new clinic, we expect to increase that because we'll have more room, more space, uh, and, uh, more, more supplies and along with word of mouth. His clinic is only getting more and more busy um, as people get bit. Well, there's nothing that uh, that adds prestige like a stand standalone facility too. Instead of you know running it out of a, a, a house like thing, now you're running. Now you've got a building an edifice devoted to this, so that you know that adds a lot to it. I imagine it's very well known in the region. You know, and this is a. This was a clinic born out of necessity, basically. The story, the story that Salou tells is he, you know, he's a, he's a herpetologist, PhD herpetologist by training. And he does, uh, you know, he's doing herpetology work. Uh, in 96, 97, um, somebody knew that he knew about St. Bites and the difference between an MD and a PhD is, you know, a little nebulous out in that region. And so someone brought their four-year-old daughter to his research facility who had just been bitten by a mamba and she died in Salou's arms. Uh, and oh. so at that point he, he decided like, you know, snake bite, we have to, we have to treat these people in this region. Like we have to do it. And so he just, he just slowly built this clinic out of, out of will and, and good, uh, and good surrounding himself with good people. And he now has a fantastic team out there. Um, and so we, have partnered with him. He's a part of ASF now and uh, have just continued to try to increase his, his reach basically with the idea that this is our, this is our hub. 
and now developing spokes of partnership in the region along with different. Uh, so our, for example, our Congolese team wants to mimic what is occurring in Guinea, right? They see, they, we've, we met, we brought our Congolese team out to the clinic in Guinea last summer. Uh, they now see what needs to occur. So they are now trying to build a clinic in Brazzaville to do the exact same thing. And then hopefully it leapfrogs into other areas showing that the people of Africa can do this. It just needs a little bit of support. Fantastic. Uh, before I, I, I do want to get into the issue of antivenom. Uh, but before we do, I know that the, the, the issue with local healers, uh, the local healers are not going away. They're always going to be part of the, of the landscape. And so you, you, you can clash with them or you can try to get them on your side. And I, I assume that, that your, your group is trying to bring bringing the healers into the fold so that they can um, maybe you know maybe they can do something to help the person but if you can get them on board to have people come to the clinic as part of their treatment uh, is that something you're working on or how is that working yeah i mean i think the goal is to minimize any delays right so when if people do present to the local healers the hope is that they will then quickly refer them to us because you know it, Sometimes we'll get patients who present to the clinic and it's been 12, 18 hours after their bite, right? And so even if they then do get appropriate antivenom, you know, the outcome will be maybe as good as expected. Um, and so so if we can, if we can, like you said, if we can get some of the local healers on our side to kind of, you know, they're gonna go, there's still gonna be patients to go to them first. So if we can get them to then quickly essentially, you know, re-triage that patient to us or to another facility that has uh, anti-venom, um, and, you know, high quality anti-venom training, then that, that would be the ultimate goal. Okay. Do you, are you got, do you guys, are you seeing this happening? Is this something, or are they, it seems like this would just be a natural clash because you would, you'd have somebody who maybe got a dry bite who went to a healer. And of course, you know what happens then, then the, the healer gets the credit, uh, for the dry bite. So I, I can just see this as being a, a real kind of a tough hill to get over. This is a this is a common occurrence, not just with us, but everybody who's trying to do this work everywhere in the world. Because the the bottom line is the bottom line. There's an economic consequence to the healers not getting those patients, and so you're now affecting the potentially their livelihood, at least in this arena. Um, and so you have to you have to try to get them on board. There is you're right. There is a natural sort of um, disincentive. Uh, and so this has been targeted multiple ways by multiple people in different regions. Some of them have brought them on sort of as to, to mitigate that economic incentive have developed a, a, a payment referral system. Um, there's been other ways in Guinea. Our main, uh, our main way of doing this has been just basically by word of mouth among the population of just bypassing them. Um, because there is a tension there and I don't think that tension is ever going to go away. Um, and there's a lot of cultural nuances. And so that maybe we don't understand because, you know, I, I'm not from that area. Jason's not from that area and many of our people aren't. So we, I let Salu dictate a lot of that stuff because there's a lot of cultural nuance and politics. Um, the same thing with our, with our, with our partnership in Sierra Leone. The same thing will happen in Congo. Like, you know, these are, our our job is to to 
give the, the appropriate tools to our partners on the ground and then let them dictate sort of how these, these, these cultural, um, nuances should occur, right. um, rather than, cause, cause the big failure is, and this is historical on, uh, multiple fronts is going in and telling people how to do stuff. And that is not right. what we want to do. Right. That's that colonialism at, at, you know, rears its ugly head, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we, we are very cognizant of sort of the white savior complex and trying to avoid right. that and, and being partners rather than um, dictators in, in a lot of ways. Gotcha. We, we would not, we would not exist. We would not be able to do what we do without them. Um, and if we, if we go under, they'll still be there. Right. So our, our goal is really to just assist them anyway. A lot of when we're, we're thinking up, you know, how can we help? What can we do? We're going to Salu and saying, Salu, you know, what do you need right now? What's your biggest area? Or what, what do you need from us? How can we support you? How can we help you, uh, you know, improve what you're doing? And so, you know, he's he's really guiding a lot of that. Okay. And the same thing, the same thing with uh, with Ange in, in Brazzaville, Congo, and with you know, we have a we have a we have a clinic already in Sierra Leone that's that's. Um, staffed by helping hands which is another nonprofit. so basically we just provide partnerships with them and they they have all everything they need from that side but we provide the snake bite training side um same thing with you know we have multiple other um potential groups you know eugene arulu's in watamu uh, kenya um has his own hospital and, and does fantastic job with snake bites out there so our job really is to facilitate what do you need how can we help you do you need supplies do you need money to build something more? Do you need just training? Um, and that's where we sort of help out. Well, let me ask you this, this another thought that just occurred to me. Um, how familiar are the, are the, the, the people with the snakes in the region? Do they know what they're getting bit? Maybe they get bit by a night adder. Are they going to know that? Or is it just, is every snake a snake or can they do every the mamba s- from a, a puff adder? What, what's it like? Yeah. So the, this is where the conservation side and the herpetology team come into play um, because, you know, a snake is a snake out there and a lot of uh, non-venomous snakes end up dying due to locals just killing them out of fear um, that they're a venomous snake. Uh, we have a system uh, that Jean-Philippe and Jordan have used that's that's pretty tried and true of, of um, you know, we have a poster on the wall with the 13 venomous snakes in the region. And we ask which one bit you, um, and that along with sort of correlating the, the um, clinical syndromes that we see, we can develop what that snake is. Now, our antivenom that we use is, is a polyvalent, so it covers the majority of snakes that, that we would have concern about. But you, people are not very educated. There's a huge fear. So, you know, we think in the U.S. people are afraid of snakes. In places like Africa, India, um, Middle East, even Latin America everybody's family member has had a family member bitten by a snake. Um, It's kind of like in the U S everybody's family members have had COVID at some point. There's a fear that uh, of the snakes there. And so people have a huge, there's, there's some fear, there's some animosity, there's some things of that nature. And so it's, it's people aren't well educated on it. Even the herpetologist. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I can't fear the same fear. It, it, the context is totally different. Mm-hmm. We're talking about uh, the fear they have is every it's complete economic loss. Mm-hmm. 
um, loss of life, loss of, you know, know, everything you, you get bit, everything you have goes to try to be cured. And, you know, so there's, it's, it's, um, it's something that at least in the United States, I mean, you can be afraid of a snake, but this is, this is a, a catastrophic afraid of a snake as you are afraid of anything, uh, that can kill you. It's, it's, uh, it's, I imagine it's it's so pervasive, like you say. There's so many people that know so many. Yeah, you know, everybody, every every family's got a member. Every family's got a story. It's just dev. It's a devastating thing, and so it's much different from my experience and what I what I can understand here in the states as uh, as opposed to what's happening in Africa. Yeah, and I think I think you know you know we lump Africa as is sort of this the single entity. I think. Um, you know, different, different places have different, a little bit of different view, but largely snakes are a, a huge fear for people. Um, there are some small regions where snakes are revered and they're got like they're, you know, they're, they're deities and, in, in a lot of the, um, of the cultures and they're well-respected. Okay. Um, but people still, uh, have a, even if he respects something, you can still fear it in a way. And so. Right. Um, and you know that it's dangerous. And so it's, 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 um, it's a constant struggle. And this has been the struggle with a lot of the, you know, snake bite is a neglected tropical disease. And, and so it's sort of supposed to get more funding, uh, and supposed to leverage that. But a lot of the, a lot of the organizations that provide funding, you know, they, they want to eradicate the neglected tropical disease. We want to eradicate malaria. We want to eradicate schistomoniasis. We want to do these things. We are never going to eradicate snake bites. That is, that would be a that would be an ecological catastrophe. We need to mitigate snake bites, and so through educating the population, uh, mitigating bad outcomes, things like that, is really the way you're going to target uh, a lot of what uh, target snake bites and improving snake bite care, and uh, hopefully making sure they have access to the antivenom that works, right? Like something that well, we're and I. I think mitigating the snake bites and mitigating the bad outcomes will hopefully decrease that fear as well, which then circles back to the conservation side where people, you know, we educate people about non-venomous snakes along with, yes, there are venomous snakes, but it's not that bad. All right. Well, thank you for, for explaining this in a way that I can understand the whole thing of mitigation. Uh, and, and I, I think when people get bit, there's a big unknown as to what's going to happen. But if you can replace that with a protocol or the, you know, they, they don't have to know the technical details. All they need to know is if something does happen to me, when I'm working in the field and I get bit, I have somewhere I can go and, and this it could be good. I can go and possibly, you know, the outcome is, is okay for me, but they don't have that right now. So that's what you're trying to put in place is the, the they know that they've got some kind of outlet. If, if, if the bad thing happens, the snake bite happens at the, that that's a big difference. Exactly. There's a there's a system in place. Um, yeah. It it will happen. Like you're you're going to get in a car accident at some point, right? But there's a system in place to to hopefully, if there are injuries, you know, help you get better. And and in the meantime, your cars are getting safer to try to prevent those injuries. And so it's kind of right. the same thing where we're trying to you know, trying to make it so bites don't happen as frequently. But if they do happen, because they will, you know, we can treat them effectively. Well, let's let's talk about antivenom. Uh, Nick, you mentioned um, uh, poly. You had a polyvalent antivenom available. 
so I, it's not just there's a shortage of antivenom. You also have the issue of uh, counterfeit antivenoms and things like that. But it, can you guys address what the real, what the, is there shortages? Is it, uh, you don't have the right tools in terms of antivenom? What's, what's going on there? I think, the, I think with antivenoms, it's really about just getting the effective antivenoms in the appropriate places, right? So there's not really a shortage, at least right now. There might be, you know, as we scale up, there might become one, but I doubt it. Um, it's really about, you know, educating people about which antivenoms are effective and where for which snakes, right? So our, you know, in West Africa, we use in a SERP. Um, it's a polyvalent that, that covers the majority of the species out there. It seems to be quite effective if it's field stable. You don't need sort of that cold chain um, supply route that, that some antivenoms need, meaning it has to be refrigerated at all times, etc. You know, in South Africa and sort of South Southern African continent, a lot more SABP or Samir is used. Those are the same ones. They just changed the name. And so just getting the, and those are, they're both really, they're, Good antivenoms are effective, um, and they and and or mitigate bad snake bites. You know, you start to develop. Uh, there's just a miseducation in a lot of ways of which antivenoms are effective and where. For example, you know, uh, Jordan and I and a few other people just rewrote the, the the U.S. military clinical practice guidelines known as CPGs for snake bites around the world. Oh wow! Version version one of those of that was to use Crofab in Africa. Now that to people listening to this podcast are probably thinking like, that's ridiculous because we know Crofab won't work in Africa because it's made for North American snakes, but that's the level in which there's sort of this misinformation of what, what should be effective where. And so it's really about getting nice, good quality antivenom to the appropriate spots. Okay. Um, so there are manufacturers that are making, enough antivenom then it's, it's just a, a distribution and an, an education issue. I think that's where we're at now. I mean, there's certainly some novel stuff that's coming out that may change the game, but right now it's just a matter of getting the, the right antivenom to the right places. Um, and then hopefully in the future, cheaper antivenoms also come that are effective, safe, also come onto the market to mitigate some of the economic costs as well. Cause you know, we have, we have an incredibly, um, we're lucky that Inesan, which makes Inesurp, um, has been very generous in donating antivenom for us and giving us a good market price. But still, uh, you know, the average GDP or the average uh, yearly income for someone in Guinea is about 1200 bucks. Most of the people we're treating are making much less than that per year. And so, you know, the average patient that we treat, probably around 100 uh 200 bucks for the entire treatment, including antivenom, that's still, that still might be their yearly salary. Um, So, you know, that certainly is much different than U.S. snake bites where our treatments can cost several hundred thousands of dollars based on our hospital system and care that's required. But 200 bucks doesn't sound much to us. 200 bucks there may be a yearly income and really wreck an entire family. And that's why we, you know, count on donations and things like that to sort of pay for the care that these people need. So, uh, yeah, you, you guys are a nonprofit organization and you do some fundraising. And so uh, it, it's safe to say a big chunk of that fundraising goes to uh, securing antivenom? 
I, I mean, I, I think that's part of it. You know, it it goes to it goes directly to snakebite care, right? Um, it 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 goes to supplies. Um, it's not all antivenom, right? But it goes to supplies, medical okay. supplies. You know, for the new clinic we're trying to get, like, like Nick mentioned, we had a donation of ventilators, but like, you know, ventilators, monitors, you know, IV tubing, uh, fluids, okay. you know, airway equipment. Um, but it, it, you know, it goes to, it goes to, you know, building the clinic, uh, things like that, you know, um, outfitting the clinic. Uh, it's not going to, you know, like we're not making money. We're like, we don't get paid salary. We're all just sure. volunteers here who are trying to do the right thing, you know, um, and so it's it, right now it's all directly going to the care of the snake bite patients and, and our core missions. We are we are a hundred percent a hundred percent of our donations go directly to providing patient care and patient needs. We're a hundred percent volunteer organization. I would love to get to the point where we are uh, we can start to pay for marketing and things of that nature. But right now it's all homegrown. But yes, the majority of our costs is anti venom. Um, but we do, and a lot of the supplies that we bring over are donated to us, but we do have to sort of augment with some supplies that, that sort of to fill in those gaps. We're lucky uh, Boston Scientific donated our ventilators last year to us, which was nice. BTG uh, gave us a one-time grant to build our our clinic, uh, the actual building itself. Right now, we're in the process of outfitting our pediatric ward and our, our, our women's uh, health ward and our clear critical care ward and things of that nature. So um, all donations go directly to doing that at the moment. Okay. Very good. Uh, and so I will, uh, in the show notes, I will put some links uh, to the, uh, the ASF uh, website and some of the uh, ways that people can help out if they want to make a donation. So what about grants? Are you guys working on getting grants from like, I don't know, NIH or WHO or somebody like that to, to help uh, with this work? Yes. It's, you want a, to take that it's a working yeah. process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a working process. Um, I think our focus right now um, is just try to try to uh, get into uh, get some donations from uh, corporations and sort of, sort of tap into their, their social responsibility funds that a lot of them have. Um, just to be honest, they're they're probably easier to get than a lot of grants because a lot of grants are very, uh, we need to find a grant writer and, and they tend to be quite technical in nature. And just from a bandwidth issue, uh, you know, we all are volunteers for this. We all have full-time jobs. Some of us have multiple full-time jobs. And so it's just, uh, we're, we're working towards improving our funding. We, we, we did pretty well last year. We did, I think we, we did about 80,000 in donations and we're, we're, our goal is to increase that every year for the next several years. Um, and as we do that, we're able to build more clinics. You know, there's not, there's not many places in the world where 50 grand builds you a new clinic building, right? And if you try to do that in the U S it's like millions and millions of dollars for, yeah. for, for, for us, you know, 50 like you say, it's a, di- it's a different system, right? Yeah, fifty grand to hundred grand is, uh, which still is a lot of money, but that uh, you get a full functioning clinic for that cost, uh, and so this is where we're trying to sort of put in different different um, dedicated snake bite clinics in order to build out um, improving care in those regions. Okay, well, you know, hopefully we can get some of our listening audience out there to to get involved in, at least for you know some donations and that, and perhaps. Uh, we can help spread the word a little bit. Uh, 
that, that would be absolutely, that'd be awesome. You know, the easiest way is to just donate through the website. Um, you know, we, we do do some like Facebook fundraising, but it's often hard for us to know who donated that way. So, um, you know, just donating directly through the website is, is the best way. There's, uh, a really easy donate page. Um, you could set up a you know a very small monthly contribution if you wanted. Um, and if anyone listening is involved with an organization that would be willing to or interested in doing something bigger, um, you know, reach out to to Nick um, or one of us uh, through the website, and we can definitely talk about what a partnership looks like, or you know, or ways that they can help. Okay. Uh, you know, we've kind of talked about what you know, were trying to save lives here trying to break this cycle of, of uh, what you call the vicious cycle where people don't get treatment or they get the wrong treatment or they get the treatment way too late. Uh, is there other issues with this uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you say that you have enough antivenom is, and the antivenom seems to be working fine. Are there other issues with, uh, with getting this, this system set up and spread a- across the various countries? Um, there's always, you know, there's always geopolitical issues, right? Uh, you know, we worked in Guinea. Guinea had a coup last October. Um, the current government is is still very supportive of our work. Snakebite seems to be this um, uh, this weird uh, free pass around Africa because every, like we said, everybody's family's been affected, and so there's um, we are very lucky um, in that we don't 100 percent of everything we send over to to Africa with our partners is used towards towards funding our clinics. Um, we don't pay anybody or have to pay locals or uh, local governmental agencies, for example, in order to function there. Um, but that those can be, those are certainly barriers for in a lot of regions. Well, that's good on, to know. Cause I top, think, I think some of our, you know, our, I think some of the audience is familiar with the way, you know, there's a certain amount of money that changes hands and, and there's some, you know, with other, with other, uh, what do you want to call it? When, with other, um, uh, independent, independent government contractors. Yeah, that kind of thing, and that's that's been noted noted before in many other ways for you know famine relief and things like that. So, uh, so it's good yeah, for you to don't. say that so people understand that that you know you guys have a direct pipeline. You're not, you know, you're not funding some you know middle level dignitaries you know new house or something with this. This is all going where it needs to go. We've been quite lucky to have governmental assurances that this will not not be an issue for us, um, and I think I think this this shows how bad the snake bite problem is in these regions, right? Because um, if if we were working on something else, that may need to happen. For us, that is not an issue because the government realizes that they have uh, limited to no bandwidth to try to take care of this problem, and so they are allowing us to sort of fill in that gap in order to do so. Okay. And then I think, you know, infrastructure is just such a huge part too, right? Like um, we're one clinic in the country of Guinea, right? There are other hospitals and other clinics and things, but, you know, people have to have access that's close or they have to have roads that allow them to get there. And, you know, right now, you know, I I haven't been able to go to Guinea yet. I kind of joined ASF right right before the pandemic, but, you know, from what I understand, like people show up on a motorbike, you know, 12, 18 hours after they've been bitten and they spent 10 hours of it on a motorbike, you know, just to get there. And so, so, you know, that's their their only way. Right. Exactly. Um, So, you know, so just that basic infrastructure, which obviously isn't something that we can, we can necessarily fix, but, you know, that's just one of the many things that, um, that we're trying to, you know, deal with. 
Well, let me let me ask you about that. Let's let's take that as a, an example. Um, somebody's bit. They spent ten hours on a motorcycle to get to your clinic. Is is antivenine antivenom still effective? I mean, is, you still pull these people back from you know the brink of losing a foot or losing their life after that after ten hours. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, there's this idea okay. that we that that gets propagated that you need to have an Certainly, the earlier you get antivenom, the better the outcome. Right. Uh, but there's this idea that like after six hours, you, you it's no longer effective. We've treated people days out after their snake bite and have, uh, you know, we may not uh, mitigate if you get bit by a puff adder and you have severe swelling and damage to that to your lower limb, for example. We're not going to re- completely reverse all that, but you can significantly decrease the ongoing damage that is occurring. You know, we've treated snake bites up to five days out, and the pain—it's amazing how quickly the pain resolves from the from the venom that's still circulating in that in that tissue. And this this gets to you know sort of developing more more outreach in these regions, and hopefully developing maybe not dedicated snake bite clinics, but getting training, having salute train people farther outside of um, the snake bite clinic that and to stock maybe small supplies of antivenom where they can get initial doses and then send them to the snake bite clinic or just treat them there hopefully in the long term um, because at 10 hours 10 hours on a motorbike with a gaboon viper or a puff adder bite is a terrible process because you're in a lot of pain and having a lot of swelling 10 hours after green mamba envenomation is not going to work. You are going to just, you're going to die from respiratory paralysis. Oh yeah. And so, okay. Right. So, you know, neurotoxic bites, like I said, are, are sort of uh, where we could probably do the most good from a, from a death standpoint, because we never hear about those cases. Those people just end up dying on the side of the road. Uh, we had, uh, we have a video on our Facebook page of, uh, uh, Fatumata, who was bitten by a, uh, what was probably a green mamba, we think maybe a forest cobra, um, at night. She came in. I mean, she was, she was minutes from dying from respiratory paralysis. Um, and within 45 minutes of receiving her antivenom, she's sleeping comfortably. Uh-huh. Uh, and within a day, within a day, she has full recovery. She's walking around and she, we discharged her three days later. Uh, with her family who, you know, she had six kids, which she supports. And so you can see, you can see on this video how close she is to dying. The ironic part is the video doesn't even capture how, how intensely sick she was because we were, we were in the process of stabilizing her and then started to take video, which, but she's, she's guppy breathing and she cannot move. And then 45 minutes later, she's itching her nose. She's breathing comfortably. She's sleeping comfortably. And she just continues to improve over the next couple of days. If she were another 15 minutes to 30 minutes further from uh, on a motorbike, she would have died. Because basically, there's the motorbike person, her, and then her family member was right behind her, basically bridging her from falling off the bike. Holding her on the bike. Yeah. And that's how most people end up coming to our clinic. That's That's... That's not an atypical presentation for our clinic. Wow. Okay. I'm just kind of amazed by that story. I'm glad that, uh, that she's, she pulled through. You'd mentioned there's, did you say seven or 11 different types of venomous snakes? Uh, in 13. Your, your Guinea, 13 around the, the area where your clinic is in Guinea. 
what are the majority of bites from? Is there one serpent or a couple serpents that provide the majority of the bites or is it across the spectrum? Uh, we, we get actually get a pretty good smattering across the spectrum. So we have, um, you know, Cossus bites, um, and Atractaspis bites occur and we don't have antivenom for those, but that's just a lot of pain control issues, not typically, you know, life threatening. Oh, really? uh, but then, I mean, you, you get stories from Atractaspis bites about cardiac issues, but we've never seen them in our clinic. They're mainly just sort of local, local injury, a lot of pain. But uh, then we have two different nausea species. So we have the forest cobra and we have um, the uh, black neck spitting cobra. And then we have the green mamba, so dendro aspis viridis. Uh, and we also have uh, dendro aspis polyepis, so the black mamba in that region. The north area of Guinea, Guinea is unique in that it has four different um, ecological zones. And so you can get different bites depending on where people are coming from from the country. Okay. So in the northern area, we get a, we get some echis bites. Those are rare because they don't typically don't make it to our clinic because it's just too far of a trip. Um, and then if you get it, if you get into the the southeastern area where you start getting into the rainforest area, you can get some atheris and some other envenomations that are that are occurring. You know, pseudohage, uh, goldie eyes in the region. I don't think we've ever had a bite from one of those. We have it's been misidentified because they're so incredibly rare and difficult to sort of find. Um, I probably missed one or two, but yeah, 13, 13 okay. uh, venomous species mm-hmm. known in the region. And, and again, how do you, you know you can't really educate? How do how would you go about educating people as to what what the venomous snakes are? I mean, you could put up put together a pamphlet, but how do you get those those types of tools? In the hands of people who are, you know, rural and remote, it's kind of hard, isn't it? it? I mean, it definitely is. I mean, there's also multiple language barriers, right? So Guinea primarily speaks French, but then the more rural you go, there's other, you know, more native languages that are spoken. And so I sometimes see. it's like, you know, even if you put together a pamphlet in French, it, it might not, you know, cover all the areas we need it to cover. Okay. All right. Yeah, I think the way you start, the way you start is uh, honestly school-age children and getting them educated oh. uh, within the local schools and 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 things of that because it's a generational thing. As they as they grow older, they'll sort of learn more and more and more, and that's been successful in some areas of the world. Um, it's just again implementing that infrastructure uh, can be difficult, and so this is where the public health outreach. And things of that, uh, and other sort of um, processes occur to sort of help with that. So, from an educational component, not just there is a clinic, they have we have these things we can help you with snake bite, but really getting out and do more of the conservation and identification side, saying, you know, even even just simple things, right? We do this in the U.S. Don't play with snakes if you don't know what it is, right? Don't touch it. Yeah, these are very simple tools. They want to be on their end. You want to be on your end, just leave it alone. Yeah. I would like to point out that the bite to one knucklehead in the United States, what it costs to treat that person in terms of hospital stays, antivenoms. How many clinics could you fund with that bill? A lot. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that single bill, that single bill for one snake bite patient in the US, we could probably we could probably build and continue to maintain a functioning clinic for five years. We could probably do two clinics in different areas mm-hmm. of Africa. 
You're looking at thousands of patients treated for that. Yeah. 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 Okay. So hopefully I just put it in perspective for some <laughs> of the folks out there. Yeah. You know, we, we, we run a very, uh, we run a, you could argue functional versus non-functional healthcare system, but there's a, there's a really large amount of resources that go into treating snake bites in this region, uh, in the U S I know because I get called for them and consult for them. Whereas in Africa, you could take that same amount of money and, and treat and basically treat an entire, an entire year of snake bite patients. You could treat without one bill. Okay. Well, what have I, what have I missed that, that we want to talk about with this project? Have I missed anything? Um, I think uh, anybody who wants not just to donate, we would love donations and partnerships, but even if anybody is willing to just get involved, even if they don't think they have the tools, we, we need the bodies. Um, and so, you know, marketing and, and even CPAs and things like that, that can help us out being a volunteer, like me and Jason are physicians by training. We are not, uh, I'm not, a, I don't have my MBA in nonprofit management. And so, you know, just having that expert help, that's a way to get involved. If anybody wants to potentially go herping and, and do things with ASF, uh, from that end, those are always uh, viable options as well. If you end up helping us out, that's sort of the carrot. Oh, you know, herp, herping in Guinea is fantastic. There's stuff everywhere. Um, and so, so, so you could go herping there and, and pay X dollars and, and that, that goes toward, towards the, the foundation. We're st- you still working out the details. <laughs> We're still working out the details on the, on the donation part and going herping in Guinea. Um, but if you, if you end up helping ASF, there's a, there's the, the people who help out with ASF get the priority in going yeah. to Guinea. Well, I know there. I can. I can just hear the Scooby Doo ears going up in the yeah. air. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of the point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, we do have we have this loose idea of starting to develop some herping trips similar to what you've done in Peru, uh, but in the U.S. and then potentially in areas like Guinea and Congo and things like that. We still have to work out the details of those scenarios, but those may be potential future options. Okay. And I can tell you, like I'm a uh, I'm similar to Jason in that prior to med school, I was kind of a, uh, a, re- a reptile dude um, who now is just coming back full circle from the medical side. But it, it's fun to just geek out and just sort of even just around the clinic area. We find chameleons are everywhere, all sorts Ooh. of different frogs. Uh, you can run into uh, a vast array of different types of snakes, uh, including venomous and non-venomous we find something every night and that's kind of the fun from the downtime standpoint, you know, we're not doing snake bites 24 hours a day. Um, sometimes there's a lot of bites some days that we get no bites. And so on those off days, the herping is just like, it's fantastic. And that's where, you know, going herping with Kate Jackson and having her tell you almost everything about everything you find is fantastic. I have, I have, she wrote this cool little book. I think it's called mean and lowly things. Yeah, it's a um, great book. Yeah, yeah. And her, cool. her and Jean Philippe just came out with the uh, the snakes of Central Africa, which is a sort of a bible of um, of all the snakes you may or may run into in, ta- in that region. And okay, it's great. Well, it, that's um, you know I think a, just 
that just pricked a lot of interest for for some of my listeners there. The idea that you could go and help out and go and 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 herp and see some really cool African or uh, Guinea herps. Um, that's got to be that's going to pull some people in, I think. And as we expand, I mean, that's only going to get broader, right? So we get our clinic up and running in Congo Brazzaville. That's a whole different arena. We have a partnership that we're developing with um, Helping Hands in um, uh, in Zambia. So that's a whole other area. Like it's just, you know, these are perk. These are perks of volunteering at the moment. Yeah. Okay. And so, and uh, Jason, you you've yet to go to Guinea and help out hoping to this june so we're planning a trip for june okay. to kind of do the uh finish the clinic and be there for the opening and things like that um and so we're we're finalizing some dates and you know i got the okay from the wife which is uh the most important thing these days uh you know get away from the get away from the kids for a couple of weeks but um uh, yeah so well the kids too. get a break too they they do get a break although you know my my oldest is getting to the age where um, he's turned into a strong little herper. So, um, you know, I hope, hope someday he can go to Peru with me or Costa Rica or Guinea or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, you'll be going back to Nick as well. Yeah, I'll be going, there'll be okay. probably a team of six or seven of us, depending on how much, uh, basically housing support is the biggest issue. And so making sure we have that. Um, okay. but yeah, we, um, you know, COVID, our idea is, is that we go over two or three times a year to various partners that we have, whether it's a small group, just me and Jason for a week or so, just to sort of, because right now we hand carry supplies over. There's no shipping uh, oh. pathway for us, right? So getting supplies over there is a, usually a couple stuffed North Face bags um, and delivering it that way. Uh, and so... All right. With COVID, you can imagine getting back and forth has really put a kibosh on a lot of trips that we've planned. Right. Um, but as hopefully, hopefully we're in sort of the last gasp of, of COVID sort of shutting down things um, for a while. Um, yeah. We can get over in a more frequent, regular basis to sort of build those partnerships and continue to sort of do on hands-on training rather than uh, sort of training through email and things of that nature and getting those supplies that are, are currently stored in my garage that need to get over there. Oh, okay. All right. I think Nick and Jordan went last uh, August. Was it August? I think. Right. And um, me, 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 Kate and Jordan went last yeah, July. July. With our and, uh, Congolese team. But you know, the, the PCR, the, the getting a PCR test to get back type thing. Hopefully if people switch to rapids, that'll get a whole lot easier. You know, they waited three days in a hotel and, the capital to get the PCR results to fly. And so, you know, there's just a lot of logistical challenges, which I know you've gone through, Mike, with some of your trips that you've done on during COVID. Yeah. It just got a lot easier. Peru got a lot easier. They, they only wanted uh, to get into country. They only required proof of vaccination. They wanted to see all three shots. Okay. And then the United States, of course, is, is requiring uh, not a PCR. They require, um, what's the, just a rapid now. Just a rapid. Yeah to get back in so um so yeah, last la last july it was to get into guinea you had to have a negative test all your shots and then to get back you had to there was one clinic in the entire country that the u.s was accepting results from so you had to get to that clinic wait get your get your nose basically a brain biopsy is the, yeah and then get i've been that through that and so the logistical challenges itself are uh 
are loosening, which will allow for more trips to occur, I think. You know, I the side note here, but I, I thought my nose ended at my face. <laughs> like, until yes. until this um, very nice lady in, in Paraguay shoved about four inches of wooden stick yeah. up there. And then I knew it was coming for the other nose, other side too. I was, whew, man, I had no idea yeah. there was all that much room back there. I mean, I'm, sure, I'm sure Nick and I have, Nick and I have definitely swabbed uh, probably hundreds of people in the last two years ourselves, okay. um, if not thousands, actually. But, okay. um, you know, he said that uh, the Guinea swab was unlike anything he had been through. Because I've also been tested, oh I think, you know, 10 or 12 times now, you know. Okay. Um, so they, they did a heck of a job. The Ghanaians, the Ghanaians certainly wanted to get some tissue in order to put on that, uh, <laughs> put on that slide to make sure you're negative. Uh, That's why I always laugh when people uh, kind of complain about some of the tests here, which, you know, they're not comfortable. I get it because I've been tested yeah. multiple times as well. But, you know, this... All of us came out of that swab tent uh, wondering if, uh, you know, if our lobotomies took effect or not. <laughs> yeah. All uh, right. Well, well, gentlemen, um, I want to, I'm going to thank you both, uh, Nick and Jason for, for coming on the show and talking about this issue. You know, some of my shows are kind of lighthearted and we talk about things that aren't really that consequential, but this time they really are. They uh, lives are in the balance here, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful to you both for coming on and talking to me. And hopefully, we can uh, spread the word and help your organization out some. It was our pleasure. Thanks, you know, thanks for having us on. Uh, you know, I think we're happy to talk about this any day. Uh, you, you know, sometimes we won't shut up about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, any opportunity is very welcome. So, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you having us on, Mike. And if, like I said, if anybody um, has further questions, they can go to snakebitefoundation.org and click on links there and, and get in contact with us or donate through that that channel. Okay. Along with following us on Facebook. Sure. Good. And I will uh, put some links in the show notes and I urge my listeners to help out if you can. And if you've got some unique talent like writing grants or <laughs> managing funds or nonprofit law. Non, yeah. All that kind of stuff. If you've got some talents in this area. I'd be honest, even if you're not so talented, uh, everybody, <laughs> as long as we get some, some energy and some, and some people just want to help. It's really, I'll be honest, this organization functions just on the, the, um, the goodness of the, the team we have now. And we're looking to expand that team for people who were dedicated and want to help, you know, a couple hours a week um, of just doing some basic things would really uh, uh, benefit us. Cause we all put in, we all put in a few hours and we were doing well so far. So we just want to okay. continue to expand. Okay. Well, before we go, as this is the Asclepius snakebite foundation, tell me about As Asclepius and what that, comes from uh, i you know i i kind of know but i want to get that out there so my audience is uh aware of what that term is referring to yeah we're both we're like <laughs> both looking at each other so so there's two there's two medical rods that get uh that get mentioned um that are associated with medicine and so there's the uh the rod of caduceus i want to make sure i get this right right so the rod of caduceus which has the winged rod with the two snakes wrapped around it. Um, and traditionally that actually represents uh, commerce and negotiation, but that is often associated with medicine. And then there's also the rod of Asclepius, which is um, on the symbol of the WHO, 
um, but it's like a, a singular rod with one snake wrapped around it. And so I think that's where, you know, that's where the, that, that's, that's the rod of Asclepius. And if I recall that, um, I, do you remember what the actual meaning of that is, Nick? I'm totally now I'm blanking. Does it actually mean medicine or? Yeah, so it's the, it's the symbol of medicine in ancient Greek times. So basically, um, Asclepius, there's a story of Asclepius killed a snake. And basically, a second snake arrived and fed herbs to the first one, basically reviving this snake, the snake that was injured or killed. And so this this rod of Asclepius sort of got formed as this story got propagated throughout Greek culture and became the symbolism of medicine. Um, as the um, the rod of Caduceus came out as well, they sort of, in historical terms, sort of got crossed cross referenced, and so. Um, you know, there's a, there's an argument about what the real symbol of medicine is. The, the purists would say it'd be the rod of Asclepius. Um, some people okay. would say it's the rod of Caduceus. And I think the Asclepius thing, uh, got picked up by the Romans too. The Romans were always, uh, adopting, you know, the gods of other cultures. Yes, very, very much so. And I believe that they would put anywhere that they would have a temple, to Asclepius, they would uh, bring in the, uh, what is the European rat snake, the Asclepius snake. I can't think of the the uh, scientific name for it now. They would release these snakes at the temples. And so you have these little scattered populations of, of these snakes from the uh, Greco-Roman area in other places in Europe because of that. That is a tidbit I did not know. That's yeah. interesting. But I, I could see it totally happening. Right. Um, I've got uh, Alafi longissima as a is associated with um, the, Asclepia, the Asclepius. Is that the snake you're thinking of? Yeah, I think that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. You know? So just a little bit of geek thing at the end of the show. That was a quick Google search, so I don't know if, <laughs> if that's right. But... <laughs> yeah. If it's not right, people will let us know. <laughs> I'm sure they will. <laughs> <laughs> What's that, Nick? I said, if there's anything humans are good at historically, it's introducing uh, um, non-native species into different regions of the world. Oh, yeah. Been going on for quite a while. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much, Nick, Jason. Uh, it's been great to talk to you. And uh, best of luck moving forward with this project. Thanks, Mike. Hopefully, hopefully get to run into you in the field pretty soon, too. I don't yeah, know when, but yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Indeed. So, yeah. nice, nice meeting you, Mike. I hope to... Hope we can get some trips in at some point. Well, I'm thinking about Africa now. <laughs> <laughs> Too many places, right? Too many places. Yeah, but, yeah. You gotta, you gotta be willing to. You know, I, I think it's probably similar to Peru or or other areas. I have never been to Latin America uh, as of yet, but it's probably similar in that you just have to be willing to um, be adventurous and and with food and and culture and everything else. In yeah, order to get to the good spots. Go yeah. with the flow and, a little bit. Things won't always work out perfect. You just got to kind of roll with it. Yeah. 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 I've I've learned that. I've learned that. It's taken me a while to learn that, but yeah. (laughs) And and you have to be, you know, it's like, well, you might be sweaty and dirty and uh, for, you know, a week or two. And that's just, you may not have power and things of that nature, but you just sort of roll with it. Yeah. Uh, You know, but the, the, the rewards are, are vast. Yeah. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, thank you again. Take care. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Hey there, it's me again. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Nick and Jason, and be sure to check out the ASF website at 
snakebitefoundation.org and snakebitefoundation is all one word. Also see the show notes for the appropriate links. Now, I urge you to check it out as they are really making a difference in snakebite survival. And folks, uh, please, if you can, please consider making a donation to help the ASF. Even a small amount can make a difference. I made a donation myself this week, and that's just a little challenge to my listeners out there. And hey, another way to help them is to purchase a t-shirt or other apparel at the ASF merch store, which is on their website. And of course, the links are in the show notes. Also, you heard that good doctors mention that they could use some help in other ways. So if you've got some of the skills needed to help organize and run a, a nonprofit, uh, please think about contacting the ASF. Even a little help can go a long way. They could sure use some help with marketing and finance and fundraising and law and I think maybe some help with social media. So uh, thanks in advance for your consideration. Okay, I also want to address this uh, Asclepius Caduceus issue before some of you fire off emails to me, uh, which is, I mean, fine, I like emails, but you know what I mean. Uh, Asclepius is the god of medicine in ancient Greek mythology. He is the son of the god Apollo and the mortal woman Coronis, and he represents the healing aspect of the medical arts. So there's a really good uh, Wikipedia entry for all of this, of course, which includes a photo of this of a statue of Asclepius. Uh, he's holding a serpent-entwined staff, which is referred to as the Rod of Asclepius, which, of course, is the symbol of medicine today. So Asclepius was a god to the Greeks and Phoenicians, and later the Romans and Illyrians, and of course, there are many variations to his mythos because he has been around for a very long time. And that's a fat rabbit hole that you're welcome to fall into in your own spare time. So the Asclepian snake, Zamenis longissimus, which is formerly in the genus Alafi or Alafi, is named after the god Asclepius, and it is found across southern and central Europe, and it's in the group that we refer to as rat snakes, and it's comparable in size to the North American rat snakes. And now, now, snakes were long revered as symbols of healing in these ancient civilizations, and the Asclepian snake became the poster child, so to speak. So a number of sources I could find, including Wikipedia and you know books I read in my youth, uh, indicate that the Asclepian snakes were kept in the temples of healing. You know, they were sort of free-range snakes, as it were, and, and this was done by both the Greeks and the Romans. And the Romans, you know, as they march across Europe and conquer new territories, they would build new temples to Asclepius, among other things. You know, these are temples of healing, as it were, and then they would import a bunch of Asclepian snakes to inhabit the new temple. So since I was a teenager, I have read that this temple stocking has led to these snakes being established outside of their normal range. And so there are little pockets of Asclepian snakes that still exist today in you know, strange little uh, corners of, of Europe. There are also at least three populations of Asclepian snakes in Great Britain, but these appear to be more recent releases uh, unrelated to the healing temples of Asclepius. Now, I haven't forgotten the Caduceus, or Caduceus as I sometimes hear it pronounced. The Caduceus has an ancient Greek origin. It is the symbol of the god Hermes, uh, a.k.a. Mercury if you're a Roman, uh, and usually figures two serpents entwined around a winged staff. Wings at the top. Uh, to, so to wrap this up, this symbol has many meanings and associations, including, and this is according to Wikipedia, trade and commerce, liars, thieves, eloquence, al alchemy, and wisdom. Uh, so the symbol was misappropriated by the United States military 
back in the 1800s for hospitals, and even the U.S. Army Medical Corps uses the caduceus symbol as a logo. So someone appropriated the wrong symbol back in the day, but it kind of stuck, you know, at least for some things. And, and now you know more than you ever dreamed of about this topic. Thanks for listening. That's it for episode 59. I want to thank Dr. Nick Brandyhoff and Dr. Jason Folk for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, guys. I learned quite a bit about the snake bite problems in Guinea and elsewhere. And thanks for listening, everyone. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information on the ASF. Thanks again to Will McManus for supporting the show. And thanks, as always, to all of the So Much Pingle patrons. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help support the show, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. And you can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much pingle.com. And you can also join the so much pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And last but not least, you can reach me directly via email at somuchpingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves. And don't forget to hurt better. <laughs>